if you've got children, the one thing that's been on your mind in 2020 and now into 2021 is how do I make sure my children are educated, well-adjusted, socialized, and still safe from any bad outcomes related to the COVID-19 pandemic? Can you influence your child's behavior at home and can you do that while balancing work and everything else you've got going on? Today on our show, we have Melissa Lowry and she's a sought after education coach. She specializes in distance or remote learning. She does all kinds of prep courses for high school kids, for younger kids. She coaches them to help them get the best possible outcomes from their education. She provides parent support. She also does curriculum design, staff development, and group facilitation in schools. She's worked in the field of education for over 20 years. She's been a teacher, a curriculum director, and a principal. Melissa is the co-author of Answer Keys, Teacher Lesson Plans for Effective Parenting. She's going to help us make sense of remote learning, distance learning, and really balancing what we're trying to do as parents, the, the best and most important job we have as parents, along with running our business, managing our complicated lives, and making sure our kids are well-adjusted, even though they're not in a traditional educational environment. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Melissa Lowry to this edition of The Inside BS Show. All right, Melissa, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about the one thing that is challenging everybody who is working from home with children and that's distance learning. I have two kids, nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. They're both learning from home full-time now. A lot of our listeners may be in a blended environment where the kids are learning from home part-time and going to school part-time. How do I approach this with my kids? Uh, the the nine-year-old obviously is going to be different than the 12-year-old. What's the approach I should take and and how how does it differ with each child? So I think, first off, sometimes you just have to be a parent. I think that many of us have super high expectations for ourselves, and therefore we have super high expectations of our kids. And what I try and tell parents when I'm working with them, and even when I'm working with students themselves, is to have realistic expectations about where a student's going to be given his or her age and developmental age. So your nine-year-old and your 12-year-old are going to be at different places, just like I've got a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, and they're at different places developmentally. So they're going to approach how they're learning differently as well. Also, there is a gender difference. And someone's going to say, what are you talking about? There's no difference, but there is. And usually at younger ages, we find that female students are a little bit better at organizing their time and note-taking, whereas our male students are sort of like, give me the information. I want to get through this as quick as I can. I'm more concerned with the end game than I am with the process of getting there. And that's developmental as well. And so there are strengths and there are weaknesses to, to both of those or challenges, if you will. Um, but our students are going to, our, our kids of different ages are going to handle things differently. And it's important for us to note that if we have one standard for a male child at one age, we may or may not have to have a slightly different developmental standard for a female student at a different age. 
it's just unfortunately not going to be a one size fits all uh, sort of approach that we're going to be able to take. So how much of this is adjusting my expectations as a parent? Because both my kids were straight A students when they were in an active, you know, in-person learning environment. And now one of the two of them, I don't want to, I don't want to single them out and embarrass them. I think that would be the wrong thing to do. One of the two of them is having a harder time in a virtual environment compared to being in, a, in an in-person environment. So how much of this is about lowering our expectations as parents and just helping them survive? And how much of it is is reorganizing the way we do things and helping them really, in some ways, they have to grow up and learn how to work from home. I mean, I, adults struggle with working from home. So how much is expectations and how much is conditioning? Well, I think the first thing, it's not even necessarily, Dave, about lowering expectations. It's about adjusting them. So academics aside, and I think it's great that we all want our children to achieve and the A's and the this and the that, but at the end of the day, 20 years from now, nobody's going to ask your student, no one's going to ask your son, what did you get when you were in sixth grade? Right. But he's going to have to function in an environment, as you just noted, where he's going to have to get up, he's going to have to you know, go to a job, he's going to have to hold responsibility. And so I think that what pan the pandemic learning atmosphere has taught us is how important soft skills are more than anything else. And so I've encouraged parents to shift their expectations away from pure academics and shift their expectations toward how is my child developing as a responsible individual? And I would say that you're, you're in my generation. This is where we have done our kids a disservice. We've done too much. And you hear the term helicopter parent. The popular term now is, I think they call it a snowplow parent, where I'm going to push away every possible conceivable obstacle in front of my child. Now those kind of, those chickens are coming home to roost where we've created an environment where when our children are met with adversity, our children are met with the challenge of sort of having to organize themselves. They have a difficult time doing it because guess what? Our generation of parent has overscheduled them has sort of been in their business to the point where they haven't had to take responsibility for anything. And I actually think that the pandemic learning time is an amazing opportunity for students to step back in a relatively safe, low stakes environment to say, okay, we're gonna allow you to struggle a little bit because it's through the struggle that you'll develop a larger sense of responsibility and a larger sense of accountability. And those are two huge soft skills that you and I know become far more important in business and in life than the grades we got in third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade. I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're spot on with that. Where our, our concern for both of our children and the the people that I work with, uh, who are you know largely professionals, lawyers, CPAs, uh, bankers, financial advisors, we also work with a lot of entrepreneurs. The biggest concern that we had as a collective group with kids who are preteens, you know, we were worried about bullying, we were worried about self esteem, we were worried about making sure that they were well adjusted and socialized, and. The bullying part of it now obviously has taken a back seat, but I'm really worried. I'm really concerned about the self-esteem aspect of it, and I know I can influence that, but I'm also concerned about socialization. So how much does a, you know, a full school year, a full academic year away from a social cohort, how much impact will that have on a child, and how do we help them recover afterwards? 
Right. While no one can say for sure what the long-term effects of the pandemic are going to be social emotionally on students. I can say from the perspective that I'm taking, which is I have students who learn with me every day. I'm running basically a micro school out of my house. And that's been the main concern. The parents saying to me, we want our kids socializing with one another. That's almost more important at this point than the academics. I can say watching the students that I'm teaching and hearing from the students that I've had in the past, I think the social, emotional, and mental health implications are going to be far-reaching and more long-standing than the academic impact. At least when I talk to you about, I would say, middle to upper middle class, which I think is probably more or less the demographic that you're talking about when you're talking about the children of CPAs and lawyers and basically people with advanced degrees. I think it's less about the academics. Those parents are going to make sure the kids get what they need to get academically, I don't actually think that there's going to be a huge um, setback for those kids. They're going to make up that time in school. But you are correct that social emotionally, the longer our students or kids stay away from each other, the more they take a hit on the development of interpersonal communication skills and also on developing deeper friendships. And in pre-adolescence, adolescence, and in the teen years, developing deep relationships, it doesn't have to be a hundred friends. In fact, the research tells us that fewer friends and deeper relationships are far better for our kids than quote unquote being popular and having a hundred different acquaintances. And so something that parents can focus on is that whole bubble effect, right? Where you hang out with a couple of families or you kind of have a few people you socialize with. I would really focus on your children having a few deep relationships with kids and not be as concerned that they're not with a hundred kids necessarily on student council or playing every sport. But if they have a few other students that they can hang out with, that they can play with, that they can socialize with and that they can connect with. So if they feel alone or isolated, they have a couple of kids that they can reach out to. I think that's gonna help stave off some of those long-term negative effects on mental health and on social emotional growth um, than anything else. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's a good point. We've, we've done that and I know a lot of the folks I work with have had two or three other families who they trust who are not out being uh, virus promiscuous, if you will, so that they can, uh, they can trust having their kids in an environment with the other kids and you know not, not have to be overly concerned. Uh, I love the fact that you said that that was enough at least to get us by in the next year. And I, I really appreciate, and it gives me a, it gives me peace of mind knowing that few deep friendships are more important than dozens and dozens of acquaintances. So let's talk about what do I do when, let's talk about what we do when your kid has an algebra problem and you haven't had algebra in a hundred years and you're on your phone in the bathroom going through a YouTube video, how to do algebra <laughs> so that you can teach them. Is it, this is going to sound like such a stupid question, but I talk about this with other parents all the time. Is it okay for my child to see me refreshing my knowledge so that I can work with them to solve these problems? Oh my goodness, absolutely. I think that's something that this younger generation is really struggling with is the idea of perfection. We live in a social media world and whether or not your children are old enough to access social media yet or not, they are still living in a bubble 
that for for anybody, I would say the age 40 or above is not a digital native. We grew up in a time where our childhood had a level of freedom that the young people don't have today. Everyone's recording something, everyone's watching you and everything you see put out in the media today is perfection, right? Our children crave opportunity for authenticity. They want to see us being ourselves. And I can't tell you as a teacher in the, you know, over 20 years, the more real I've been in the classroom, especially when I was teaching those middle school kids, the better and deeper relationships I develop with those students because they saw me as a person and they knew that they could fail forward with me. And that's something that's super important. You know, our kids idolize us. That scares me a little bit when I think of some of the mistakes I've made, but we are our kids' number one educator and they're going to look to us for guidance. And if we are unwilling to show them who we are when we make mistakes, when we have to take a refresher, when we can admit we don't know everything, the more likely they are to share with us. Um, and that's something that's super important because our children, especially in pre-adolescence, adolescence, and teen years, they don't want to be embarrassed. They will hide things from us simply because they do not want to admit it. The more that we can admit that we don't know everything and we can learn alongside them, as opposed to pointing a finger at them or wagging our finger at them or, or trying to, I don't want to say demean them into doing what we want, but forcing them into doing what we think is, is the best thing to do, the more likely they are to work well with us and the less likely they are to arch their back if we are showing our true selves to them. So absolutely, I tell parents all the time, I do it all the time. I say to my students, wait a second, we got a couple of computers here. I don't know the answer to that. Let's look it up together. And then it's an opportunity for you to teach your child a really important skill, research. How to tell the difference between a website that, let's face it, not so great, versus a website that's going to be a wonderful resource for your child to use later on. There's, there's always an opportunity for teaching, even when we have to reflect on sort of our own deficiencies. One of the things that I've focused on and I know a lot of parents are concerned about is self-esteem, especially in children who are, you know, preteens or just getting into their teen years. Mm-hmm. How do we... How do we help our children when we as parents, and, and this is, I think this is a perfect question for you as somebody who coaches both parents and, and students and educators. So a lot of people right now in their uh, adults right now who have children are struggling with their, their own way to get through the pandemic. They're struggling maybe financially, they're struggling with their business, they're struggling with time and prioritization. How do we manage that be authentic, as as you said, kids value, especially kids these days, value authenticity, yet still manage to be that rock, that foundation for children so that they don't have the undue stress of worrying about things their parents are worrying about. Right. Well, I think one of the main things to do is is not not to hide from what's going on in the pandemic. And this idea that everything is always going to be okay. Like, oh, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine. I try, I I tell parents, your children aren't stupid. They're just younger and a little bit more naive about the world, but they can feel our emotions. I mean, they are very in touch human beings. And so when mom and dad are constantly, it's all gonna be fine, it's all gonna be fine. Kids can definitely see through that. And so I tell parents, you have to look developmentally 
you know, where your child is, but it's okay to share things. It's okay if a parent loses a job to sit down and have that conversation and say, hey, look, our lifestyle may look different for the next six to nine months. And this is the reason why. You don't need to tell them everything about your financial status, but it's okay to share some of that information. We are by nature as humans, as animals, industrious beings. We want to produce and we want to contribute. And if you look back at our history, we've always lived in tribes, okay? So our kids want to contribute to what's happening. And so for adult, pre-adolescents, adolescents, and teens, it's important to give our kids an opportunity to contribute. So by being honest with our kids and saying, hey, look, things might look a little different. These are the types of stresses that we're going through. These are the types of things that we're experiencing right now. And this is how you can help us. I know in our family, I talk to my kids, it's Team Lowry. And Team Lowry doesn't work unless all of us contribute. And these are the things I need you to do. My husband and I need you, you know, dad and I need you to do in order for our team to work effectively. And when we sat down with our kids and really talked about what our lives were going to look like for the foreseeable future, our kids were like, let's do this. They rolled up their sleeves and they were like, what do we need to do? And we were like, hey, these are the things we need to do when we're working from home. And for me, the first six months, I was going to work every single day. I wasn't home at all. In fact, I worked more during the pandemic as a curriculum director than ever before. My kids were helping with laundry. My kids, because they were learning from home, they ha actually had more free time. I found that my kids did very well self-esteem-wise because they felt like they were doing something to contribute. I believe, Dave, the more we shield our kids and try and prevent them from feeling anything, the more they're going to feel and the more anxious they're going to become. When we can't control anything is when we become scared. When we can't control anything in our life is when we become anxious. Give our kids something to control, cleaning their room helping with chores, walking the dog, something small that they control, that they're in charge of. Even young kids can do that. Children as young as two, year old, two years old can sort laundry, believe it or not. We just don't always want to put our kids in a position to make them uncomfortable or make them feel a burden. Our children actually want some of that. They want responsibility. We shouldn't shy away from giving them some of that responsibility and in an age appropriate manner, being honest with them about what's happening and how they can help contribute to the family. Well, that's, I think that's great. That's, that's terrific advice. Let's talk a little bit now about the, the actual blocking and tackling the day-to-day -day of helping your kid learn during a time when they're... I mean, let's face it, we didn't plan on educating our kids through video learning. We didn't plan on having the parents play a more active role in making sure that the kids are keeping up. Traditionally, teachers would walk around the classroom and, and see who was, who was a little bit behind, see who needed an extra push, see who needed to be challenged a little bit more. That responsibility during a virtual environment is pretty much on us. So as parents, what are what are the basics that we need to think about from a learning perspective when you're in a virtual environment? So I think that there are a few things, and I'll kind of start with a little bit of a scenario. So at the beginning of any school year, whether you've got a child who's in kindergarten or a child who's in middle school, high school is a little different because they're changing classes every day. But when we're kind of looking at the younger kids who are not quite self-sufficient, Every teacher out there will tell you that he or she spends six to eight weeks on routine. 
that's how long it takes to get a group of 20 kids or whatever it is to actually be able to follow a procedure in the rules like 90% of the time. So from fire drills and evacuation to where to put your papers and your pencils, six to eight weeks. Last year, what we did is we plucked kids out of the classroom on a Thursday. I don't know how it was for you here in, um, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. They left on Friday and they had off Monday and Tuesday and we put our virtual plan in Wednesday. I mean, we were given about five days to get this thing up and rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was March. March 13th was the last yeah. day of in-person school. Yep. Exactly. So we pulled the kids out of the environment that they knew that it took a good two months to create, threw them into a classroom with, no offense, inexperienced teachers um, who had a very stressful situation. And when I say inexperienced teachers, I'm talking about the parents. I mean, we mm. ripped them out of this environment, threw them into a brand new one and said, let's hit the ground running, people. It's ready to go. There's nobody who could have pivoted that quickly and been successful. Truly, whether it was school personnel, whether it was teachers themselves where this was new and whether it was the students. And so I was constantly talking to parents saying, hey, wait a second, we've got to forgive a lot of what we're seeing with our kids because they are anxious. They're upset. They're angry. They're missing their friends. Depending on what year they were in school, they were rightfully aggravated. Our poor seniors, you know, lost their whole senior year of high school. Our eighth graders lost that. Our fifth graders who were rising sixth grade. I mean, there was a loss of many things to be mourned. And we just expected people to to pick up and hit the ground running. It was unrealistic expectation. And so I think the first is creating realistic expectations. It's not lowering the bar. It's just changing kind of what the standard looks like. So that's the first one. I think a lot of parents have this angst that they were expected to just be a perfect teacher. Well, I don't know. I I mean, I went to school for six, seven years to become a teacher, to really become a great teacher. And then it was another how many years after that? And parents' expectation was, I'm going to be able to teach algebra again. I don't know that that was a realistic expectation. So that was probably the first thing. But the second thing parents need to do is they actually need to step back and they need to observe, which we are not actually very good at doing. We want action, Dave. We want to change it right now. And we want it to work. Life doesn't work that way. I urge parents to step back and to spend a week watching their children. How does my child learn? How does my child approach learning? When does my child get up in the morning? Where is my child successful? If we are constantly putting our expectations and the way that we would do things onto our kids, they will never be successful. Because if I went to your radio show and said, hey, Dave, this is how you're going to do it every day. You'd say, wait a second. That's, that doesn't feel right to me or that's not the way that I work. But we've done that to our kids and we haven't given them the freedom and the ability and the environment to actually develop their own approach to things. And even children as young as kindergarten and first grade can be a part of that process. So we need to to look at how our kids are learning, how they approach things, and then sit down and talk to them and involve them in a conversation about how they want to approach school. Because again, the less control our kids have over everything in their environment, the less likely they are to want to participate in. They're going to go, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be involved in this because someone else is making the decisions. And that's hard for a lot of parents, but they've got to spend a little bit of time observing their child and saying, how do you think you should approach this instead of you should do this? It's sort of about open-ended questions 
and getting kids to engage in a super fancy word called metacognition, which is actually very simple. It's thinking about thinking. How do you want to approach a problem? How do you want to approach your learning? What do you think will work? What do you think won't work? And getting the kids involved in a dialogue. Now, many parents are going to say, seriously, I don't have time for that. I just need Johnny or Susie to just get their work done. But I'm telling you right now, small investment on the front end is going to pay humongous dividends on the back end when your child takes active control over his or her learning. And most parents have said that'll never happen with my kid. And I'm like, it absolutely will. And I would say right now with the parent coaching I'm doing nine out of 10 times, this approach works every single time. And I wish I could say I created it or it was mine. It's not. It's just a really good approach to getting kids to, again, engage in metacognition, to think about thinking, think about how they learn and take control over how they're approaching school. And those are two of the main places to start. Great. That's that's terrific. How much of what you're seeing uh, now, and I think maybe this was always a, the case, but the pandemic may, may have just exacerbated it or brought it to the forefront. How much of a good learning experience for the child comes from parents' self-awareness and recognition of how they're interacting with the child. Basically, if I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are, I can make sure that I'm leading with my strengths when I'm working with my children and I have a support system, either my spouse or you know, another, uh, another option for helping the child understand certain things. How much, how important is it for the parent to be self-aware so that they can really work with the child in a way that makes sense for both of them? It's paramount that, that parents become aware of their own stress level of how they approach problems and what their strengths and challenges are. And if you're in a two parent household, things are a little bit easier than if you're in a single parent household. But if you're in a two parent household, I think, yes, you should have a conversation with your spouse or your partner to say, wait a second, what are our strengths and weaknesses? So if you happen to be the one whose strength is organization, that might be the area that you tackle. Whereas if your partner is the one who's a better listener, then your partner is going to be the one who's going to say, okay, I'm going to be that second person for when the child starts to kind of spin out of control and wants to throw a tantrum or whatever. I'm going to be the one to help calm that child down because, yeah, that's not your strength. So I think it does beg a conversation of parents to say, how are we going to strategize to address this issue? Because nobody wants to sit and yell at their kids all day. And it's something where I tell parents that unless you have a very special relationship with your children, you should never tutor your own kids. And I have said this for years and years, I don't, Dave, tutor my own children unless I absolutely have to, or they ask me for my help. If they ask me for my help, that's very, very different than they're actually looking you know, for that type of coaching. So all of a sudden we've moved parents from, you shouldn't be tutoring your kids at all to, you're gonna become the primary teacher. And that's something that I do think that parents have to try and step back from a little bit. Our kids, again, they're, they're not dumb and their teachers aren't. We do have to step back from this desire to want to control everything to say, wait a second, I'm going to let the teachers do their job. 
on virtual. I'm going to allow my child a little bit of room to sort of have some problems and deal with those problems. It's okay for children to get super frustrated. It's okay for kids to not have the answer to everything. It's okay for them to get a little bit upset that they don't have the answer, but they're never going to learn resilience or perseverance if we step in every single time and we solve and we control. It's just not going to work. And so parents have to check themselves a little bit to say, wait a second, am I stepping in because I'm uncomfortable with my child struggling? Am I stepping in because I'm the one who wants to control this to quote unquote, make it go away to fix it, whatever. I would really caution parents against doing that. Allow their kids to sit with their discomfort a little bit, allow the kids to sit with problems and issues because the first time that child solves an issue on his or her own, oh my gosh, that's like mind blown. And that kid's going to then ask for more. That kid's going to want to solve more problems because he or she's had a success. If we keep solving every problem, they're never going to learn how to persevere through an obstacle. And those obstacles and challenges as they get older, I mean, now that I've got a sophomore in high school, those challenges are far greater now than they were for her when she was in grade school. So it is important for parents to be self-aware enough to know I don't know everything. I can't solve everything. I'm not even going to know all of the answers to every single one of these problems. I'm going to have to trust my child to involve him or herself in the process a little bit and to trust the teachers and to use the teachers sort of as partners, even in virtual learning. We can email, we can reach out to teachers. And the teachers that I work with and I talk to say that parents don't utilize them enough. They're working just as hard now. There's no teacher out there eating bonbons, doing nothing on virtual learning. Most of my colleagues are working harder now than they ever were when they were in the classroom. Um, but I do think that parents can reach out and form partnerships. And the more that teachers know about what's happening at home, the more likely they are to be able to help the child. Yeah, it's it's always important to bring it uh, to bring it back to the person who's uh, you know other than the parents will have the most influence over your child perhaps during the course of the year, and that's the teacher. So let's talk about that for a minute. The teachers themselves now in some places like where where I am in Florida, and I'm familiar with New York as well. Are teachers are in a blended environment? So here in Florida. The teachers have maybe 10 kids in front of them and another 30 on a TV screen, right? Yep. In New York, the teachers only see their kids maybe twice a week. So they're, right. you know, there's a, there's an A group and a B group. The A group goes on Monday and Wednesday. The B group goes Tuesday, Thursday, and everybody's virtual on Friday. So you've added a brand new dynamic to the teacher's routine. What can parents do to support the teachers to make sure that where we're making the adjustment ourselves and we're helping our kids make the adjustment to get the most out of someone who has spent their entire career training for and executing in an environment that has been turned upside down in the last 10 months. Right. I think this is difficult because as you just pointed out, depending on what state or even here in Georgia, some of our school districts have gone back. Some of our school districts haven't. I have one child who's actually in school every single day and he hasn't missed a day of school because of the pandemic. Um, and a shout out to his school. They've done an amazing job. My daughter who's in high school, it's a bigger environment. They're on a hybrid. They just went back to five day a week learning after Thanksgiving. Whereas the student, the seven students I have in my micro school are all in a public school district that's 100% virtual. So it's, I mean, it's across the board, even within 
Atlanta, we have a ton of different models going on. I think first and foremost, what parents need to understand is that despite the fact that this has been politicized, teachers are working hard. And yes, there is a movement in some places for teachers not to go back, for it to be virtual, so on and so forth. Are they essential workers? Are they not? Da, 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 da. We have to kind of let that go a little bit and realize that, at least in my experience, I don't know one teacher who's not working harder today, as you pointed out, in both in-person learning and virtual learning or in all virtual learning. It is difficult to be on a screen teaching all day long when you can't always account for all of your students. So we need to kind of cut through all of that and realize that our teachers are working in our kids' best interest. They really, truly are. And we need to kind of let all of the rest of that go and realize that the teachers truly are partners. We all want students to do well. None of us want our students to have mental health implications, social emotional issues, or to fall behind academically, especially our students who are most needy. So I just want to make sure that teachers out, I mean, parents out there know that, that teachers are the partner and not an adversary in any way, shape or form. But the number one thing that parents can do is to help their kids to develop a routine and to follow what the school's routine is to the best of their ability. So if your school happens to be 100% virtual and your child's supposed to show up for class every day at eight o'clock, we as parents, that's gonna be the non-negotiable. Our kids need to be on at eight o'clock. So we need to sit down and figure out how to help our child develop that schedule for our child to get online. And so the routine is number one. And you're going to say, wait a second though, Melissa, there's no, there's no routine everywhere. Yes, that's going to be a challenge. Yes, it's difficult because the routine may change depending on the child's schedule. But I can say when my daughter was doing the hybrid, we took out a big calendar, we put it out, we marked out the days when she was going to be at school, marked out the days that she wasn't. And then I said to her, how do you want to attack your hybrid learning. How do you want to attack the days you're at school versus the day you're at home? And she and I sat down and it took about an hour, but we were able to at least come up with a game plan that she was driving. Okay. That's the important thing. My younger child who's in seventh grade. Now we did the same thing. I said, I need to hear from you what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Even though you're going to school every day, when you get home, so on and so forth. And so we just sat down and even though it took some time and then we've had to make adjustments along the way, setting up that routine and kind of a game plan for how to approach the system has been the most successful. And I would say that's the number one thing that parents can do. Don't be reactionary and don't lead from behind. You got to be proactive. You got to sit down with your kids. You got to map it out and you've got to say, okay, we're going to think ahead for like the next month or however long. I know that they've been stringing people along here based on the COVID numbers. Like we're going to go back. My kid, my students were supposed to go back. The ones that I teach in October. Well, too many COVID cases. They were supposed to go back January. Too many COVID cases. They're now going back February 1st. So we're having to, you know, readjust with that. But I would say parents can pick a period of time, a month or whatever that maybe the school district is telling them and map that out. And if the school district has called it, which some have and said, we're going virtual. I know um, I have relatives down in Miami and one of my niece's schools, they've called it. They've said, we're going virtual till the end of the year. Um, they've created a routine and a way to approach that learning from now until the end of the year. So that's really the number one thing that a parent can do with his or her child. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. We we made the decision early on that regardless of the the status of the pandemic, we were we were going to keep our kids in a virtual environment for the entire year. And the reason that we did that was exactly for for the purposes of what you're saying, so that they had some certainty in their life. They know at 8:30 a.m. they have to be in front of their computer. We know when the breaks are. We know what's going to happen. And we they may get a vaccine in March or April, but they're going to stay virtual until the end of the year because we don't want to mess up the routine that they've that they've already gotten into. Um, the biggest thing I think the biggest learning that I've had as a parent is that consistency is critical. It's critical for all humans, but it's especially critical for developing humans. <laughs> so, you know, we wanted to keep them in that, uh, in that environment, in that routine. Now let's talk a little bit about, put your, put your principal hat on for a minute and let's talk about evaluating kids, let's say a year from now, pandemic is over. Kids are back in a real traditional academic environment and kids are like Skittles anyway. They come in all different, you know, flavors and, and learning styles. But now you've got an, an additional dynamic where you've had people who, you know, like people like, you know, us who are on top of our kids and making sure that they're extracting enough from the learning. And then you have other people who just couldn't do that because they have jobs where they work outside of the home and they're, the kids were kind of left on their own. As, a, as an educator, what what is what would your plan be for looking at this broad spectrum of kids and saying, okay, well, we used to have tests that would measure whether somebody was gifted and they could be in a, an advanced class in certain subjects. How do you what do you do now? I mean, what what would your plan be for evaluating kids who you know maybe didn't get the best education through no fault of their own not through their parents fault not through the school's fault just because of the pandemic what it, what, what do you think is going to happen down the road how are we going to make sure that we keep these kids we get these kids up to speed if we can well i think that if you're looking at kind of private school or parochial slash religious schools there's a little bit more autonomy in those environments and principals are put in positions to be able to make far more sweeping decisions on behalf of their population than let's say a public school where usually it's a more of a one size fits all model where the expectation is that the principal at you know the eight elementary schools or whatever it is within a specific school district are going to address things the same way so i think for the private school sector even charter schools parochial schools religious schools it's going to be a little bit easier because the principals are going to be able to sit back with their faculty and staff and say, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to take a look, let's say at everything from attendance records. So who were we getting at school and when, how, what was our attendance rate? How many kids were missing? Who was missing what to be able to identify, let's say our at-risk kids. And hopefully schools are doing that already and saying, okay, we've got to make sure we get the school to the table. I know in the spring, I spent a ton of time in my car delivering technology to my students, making sure they had what they needed so that we could put them in a position to actually attend virtual school. And then I would say you have to create a benchmarking system using a ton of different data points. And those data points are going to vary from school to school because once you benchmark all the kids, you'll be able to take a look at what they're missing as far as skills and content. And then I would probably divide it up. So you've got skills-based 
learning and you've got content. So I would put language arts, grammar, things of that nature and math under in the skills bucket for right now. And then things like science, social studies, et cetera, into the content bucket. There are some skills in there, but for the most part, you're teaching dates and names and processes and things of that nature. Whereas with math, you're building or scaffolding upon that information to learn something new. So if I had the autonomy as a principal, I would probably, after benchmarking all of our kids, shift a focus to how do we hit the skills that are lacking first? Because content knowledge has changed from when we were young. We don't have, you know, just the Encyclopedia Britannica these days. We've got the internet. And so there are other ways to fill the gaps with content. I think when you're moving to the public school system, what I would urge, you know, public school districts to do is to allow a little bit more autonomy for the principals to say, you need to be able to make decisions that are in your population's best interest. Because you may have a school that's got a, a large population of Title I which is where you're seeing students living at or below the poverty line that are taking advantage of free and reduced lunch, things of that nature. The research is telling us that the, those students have bigger challenges and obstacles with getting to virtual school every day from lack of internet access and lack of technology to sometimes not having as much supervision of a parent working at home because that parent has to go out and work in the service industry or in some other industries. Whereas you may have a suburban school where they have a 98% attendance rate and that principal has a different issue than you know, principal A that I noted. And so I think that autonomy for principals, for them to be able to sit down with their faculty and staff, assess specifically what their population needs and what their parents need. Parent outreach has never become more important than it is now, Dave. And we need to make sure that we're continuing to not only form, but to really foster and maintain strong relationships with our parent base. And that means not judging where our parents are, but meeting them where they are and helping to bring them to the table so that they can be more involved in the education process. And so I would say, besides the fact we need to give principals autonomy to be able to benchmark where their students are, really evaluate the data on attendance and on technology use and checking in all that, we also need to help um, meet where those parents are. And I know schools that have stepped up and they've invited parents in a socially distanced form to be able to come in and get their own technology training. I know schools that have had you know, virtual nights for parents to come in. Again, that can be a challenge in some of these areas where access to the internet, even for parents is a challenge. So I think that the more that we can create local control for schools, at least in this specific instance of working with the pandemic, the more likely those schools are and those principals to be able to have a, a real positive impact on the population that they're serving. Great. Talk to me about the, from a teacher's perspective, how, how, what is the, what is the ideal way for a parent to connect with a teacher and give the, give us the description of the ideal involved parent. I mean, I know I have a vision in my mind for what the nightmare parent is. Tell me, you know, tell me, tell me about from a, from a teacher's perspective, what's the, what's the perfect way for somebody to reach out to the teacher, how involved, you know, we're not going to be defensive where we're going to ask questions to help our kids. What is the, what is the teacher, what is the teacher's perspective on parent teacher interaction? Right. 
Well, I mean, if we end up having any teachers that are listening to this, the first thing I would encourage them to do is create a parent forum. So a time when you're actually checking in with your parents and providing them an opportunity to reach out with you and communicate. I think a lot of times teachers, we get a little apprehensive from involving ourselves with our parents for kind of what you talked about, fear of the judgment and the why aren't you doing this and why isn't my child getting that? But what I found is when we're not communicating is when people become anxious and fearful again, and they feel this lack of control. So as teachers, even as administrators, if we're providing an opportunity for parents to be able to openly and actively communicate with us, we're already breaking down one barrier. So that's something for teachers. But for parents, I would say the first thing is be proactive. Do not wait until your child is drowning in week nine to reach out to the teacher. So I would say for parents that are gonna be going back to school next week, whether it's virtual, hybrid, or in person, it's a welcome back to school, like, hey, happy 2021, I'm so-and-so's mom, maybe I've been in touch, maybe I haven't, I'm so-and-so's dad, caregiver, whatever it is, I just wanna reach out to you, I wanna welcome you back, and I wanna ask you what are the three things in your opinion that I should be doing right now to set up my child for success from now you know, through the end of the year, let's say, or from now through the rest of virtual learning. Give me three things I can do to help you as a teacher. And most teachers are gonna say, wow, that would be amazing. And so it's opening the line of communication in a proactive form and not just hitting the teacher when the problem arises. That's really difficult for us. I know I would kind of go through a quarter and I might email a parent or call. I was a big fan of calling and saying, hey, look, your child's struggling with this. This is a challenge. Let's partner together. Crickets, not hearing anything crickets. And then all of a sudden, you know, Johnny is failing and then the parent is angry. And it's like, whoa, wait a second. If we had formed a partnership early on, we could have probably dealt with this in a more positive manner. So I think some parents are reluctant. They don't want to bother the teacher. They don't want to just be noise in the teacher's mind. But I would say, I, I would name very few teachers who would not welcome that nice proactive email. It's like, hey, we want to come out in 2021 really positive. What's happening with my child? Give me three areas of strength for him, three areas of challenge. How do you think I can help my child be successful? And I think most teachers would welcome that. And that's a great place to start. That's terrific. You know, if I can editorialize for a minute, we spend so much time as parents with, so you, like if your kid with extracurricular stuff, if your kid's in baseball, he's got a hitting coach. If he pitches, he's got a pitching coach, right? And he goes to see the pitching coach twice a week. He goes to the hitting coach twice a week. Then he's got his team where he practices and he's got his main coach on his team. And as a parent, you're interacting with all these people. And what are you doing? You're saying to them, okay, hitting coach, what do I need to work with my son or daughter on for the next five days between the time when we meet so they get better? We don't do that with the math teacher. We don't do that with the science teacher. We don't do that with the uh, the health teacher. We Instead, what we do is the minute they get a bad grade, we call up the teacher and we go, why did my kid get a bad grade? You know, <laughs> and if if your if your kid struck out three times, you wouldn't go to the hitting coach and go to the hitting coach. Why are you screwing up my kid? Why, why are you not helping my kid hit the baseball? Right. So as parents, if we took as much of an interest in helping the 
the educators do their job as we do in supplementing their performance in other areas. My daughter dances. She's got a different ballet uh, teacher than she has for, uh, for a tap. She's got a different teacher for jazz. She's got a different teacher for contemporary. So, you know, we have to interact with them to make sure we're doing everything we can for her to practice between those sessions. Yet we're not doing that with the math teacher, with the science teacher. So, use the pandemic as an opportunity to connect with these people. And that brings me to you and what you do. Explain for folks how a parent getting involved with you can completely transform the learning experience for their child. Well, I definitely want to start by saying to parents that by no means um, are parents failing their kids if they haven't gone out and hired someone like me or put their kids into a pod, as they're called. I like to call them quarantines, but you don't have to have someone like me taking care of your kids seven hours a day. Um, it's great if the opportunity avails itself, but it's not something that parents have to do. You definitely can set up an environment at home where your child can do very well, or at least survive, not always thrive, but survive through sort of this short-term period. I know it seems interminable. I know we've all said, I can't wait until this ends, but I think all of us will look back five years from now, and this will have been a short period of time in our children's lives, right? So this is a short-term problem for us, hopefully, that's what I'm sort of banking on. Um, and so parents just, they need to forgive themselves a little bit and not be too hard on themselves if they're the ones that are sort of having to provide this and they don't come out and find someone like me. But something I am doing with parents is parents will come to me usually with very specific issues that are happening with their child and then seek my advice on how to solve those issues. And what I typically say to parents, uh, so I'll give you an example of a family I'm working with now. This child's in fifth grade and he's having a very difficult time taking care of his own stuff. He loses stuff. He can't organize his materials on his own. He forgets things at school. He forgets things at home. He doesn't have, as they would term it today, executive function skills. So mom and dad are like, how do we get him from point A to point B? And I usually kind of start at home. And in this case, I said, well, what is your child responsible for at home? And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what does he do? And she said, well, his, his job is school. And I said, nothing else. And she said, well, no, we try and take everything else away because we want him to do well in school. And that right there is part of the issue that someone would hire me to kind of come in and work with. Because what people think, Dave, is that we develop executive function skills in school and we apply them in daily life when it's actually the opposite. We develop executive function skills or soft skills in our everyday lives and then we take those skills and we apply them in an academic setting. So the first thing I had her do was stop doing stuff. I said, well, how does he get up in the morning? And she said, I stand at his door and I come back like every five minutes and yell at him to get up. And I said, how does that work for you? And she said, not well. And so we walked through his morning routine and basically, Think of it if you had, I'm thinking of like Nick Saban or Bill Belichick, like behind you as a player, just walking behind you, telling you what to do every two seconds. No player would do well in that environment. And so I said to her, you need to back off for one week. I said, just go with me on this. Tell him that you think he's ready for more responsibility. You're super excited. You're going to set, you know, help him set the alarm in the morning and you're going to give him one sort of coaching lesson. And then he needs to get up. 
And then we walked through what the consequences would be. And we were able to figure out some consequences if that doesn't happen. And she talked about him, so on and so forth. It took one day. One day and this kid was up and out of bed, eating his breakfast, getting dressed for school. And she's like, I didn't know he could do it. And I said, well, yeah, because you never gave him a chance. Mm -hmm. So I'm really working with parents on reevaluating how it is that they approach parenting. And I say to them, it's not about parenting. It's about coaching. It's really, truly about coaching your kids where you want them to be. Now, I was a soccer player. I coached soccer for seven years. And I said this to parents all the time. Let us take care of all the fundamentals, just like you were talking about with your daughter, with the dance coach and everything else. You take care of being mom and dad and you take care of being that cheerleader and that sort of side person. But in this case, the parents are having to step in to be the actual coach themselves. It's not about pointing our finger and wagging our finger. It's about encouraging our kids to do the best that they can in the environment that they're in. And coaching as opposed to parenting helps us do that. And that's what a lot of parents hire me to do. Right now, it's less about my teaching prowess. I do do a lot of teaching, but most of my kids are on virtually or they're doing an asynchronous type platform where they're given the videos and everything and I'm monitoring. So a lot of what I'm doing is helping parents sort of navigate the pandemic by not screaming their heads off and not losing it with their kids and really putting themselves in the position of a coach as opposed to sort of a dictator type. That's And that's a lot of what parents are, are having me do right now. That's terrific. If you want to hear more or avail yourself of some of the resources that Melissa has available, I'm going to give you her website. It's down in the show notes, but if you're just listening to this and you want to write it down, you can go to www.melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A hyphen Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y hyphen education hyphen coaching.com. Melissa hyphen Lowry hyphen education hyphen coaching.com. You can find all kinds of great resources there on her website. If you're struggling during the pandemic, I mean, we've, I've been talking to Melissa now for 45 minutes and I feel better just having had a conversation with her here. If you're struggling during the pandemic and you want parent coaching, there's a great place to go. Go to Melissa's website and reach out to her. Melissa, can I give out your phone number as well? Would you mind if people call you? It's right here on your website. Um, no, I don't have an issue at all. Just know that I now live in Atlanta, even though I have a Houston area code because we <laughs> used to live in Houston and have moved around a few times. Okay. So you can call Melissa at 713-444-6471, 713-444-6471. Here's the way I look at it. Like I said, you're, you're, you're going to invest in your kid to put him in baseball and he's going to have a hitting coach and a pitching coach and that'll get him through this season and maybe your kid will be you know playing baseball for two or three seasons. The education is the foundation for the rest of their li- life and they're learning social skills, they're learning skills like executive function skills like Melissa just outlined. Get this right. If you have the ability How's it going to hurt you to get some parent coaching to organize the space for your kid? And I think even more important, because you may be listening to this now and we may be on the verge of going back full time to a to an in-person environment. How are you going to handle that transition for your child? How are you going to manage that transition for, for your child back into a full time learning environment compared to where they were virtually? So. Melissa, it has been absolutely fantastic having you with us today. Thanks for joining us. 
leave us with the the final thing I, I want you to I want you to um, highlight for us. And we were talking before we started recording about how you know helping your kid get through this year is your primary goal, right? Explain to people this isn't the end of the world. The kids are going to be fine. Just help them get through this year. Our children are going to be fine. They're extremely resilient, and we're going to help them by teaching them how to persevere through things. But Dave, I'm going to give your listeners the four questions that are going to change their relationship with their kids. What went right? What went wrong? What do I replicate? What do I change? Be a coach. When things go well for your kids, ask them what went right and how do you replicate that later? When things don't go well for your kids, they don't bring home the grade that you wanted to see or that more importantly, they wanted to see. Ask the question, what went wrong and how do you change that for next time? And I'm telling you, if we get away from accusations and finger pointing and yelling and we ask those four questions, what went right and how do you replicate that next time? Or what went wrong and how do you pivot and make a change for next time? If we get our kids to start engaging in metacognition and thinking about how they learn with those four questions, we will transform our relationships with our kids for the better. All right, Melissa Lowry, thank you so much. We will highlight those four questions in the show notes. Ask them of your kids. This has been the Inside BS Show, where we gave you the Inside BS today on educating your kids during a pandemic. My guest has been Melissa Lowry. You can find information about her at her website, www.melissa-lowry-education-coaching.com. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. And until tomorrow, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.